All healthcare professionals participating in this podcast are paid consultants for Avellino. This special edition episode of CRST the Podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetics and Eye Care Today. This podcast is sponsored by Avellino, and you can find more resources on Genetics and Eye Care Today. I'm Dr. John Gellies, and today with me is Dr. Melissa Barnett. Hello, everyone. I'm an optometrist at the Corny Laser Eye Institute and the CLEI Center for Keratoconus in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I'm a principal optometrist at the University of California, Davis Eye Center in Sacramento and Davis, California. In this podcast, we'll discuss how the Avagen genetic test for keratoconus and corneal dystrophies can guide your myopia management decisions. Or stated as a question, how does the assessment of the genetic risk factors for keratoconus development provided by the test potentially change your myopia management strategy? Yeah, Melissa, let's let's talk a little bit about the test so that people can understand, you know, really, what is this test providing for... uh, you know, for an understanding of keratoconus and, uh, you know, its other use, which is uh, corneal dystrophy? Yeah, great question, John. So Avagen is the first personalized genetic test that uses next-generation sequencing to detect variants across 75 genes and creates a polygenic risk score, or PRS, to identify patients who are at a high genetic risk for keratoconus and also corneal dystrophies. So a sample is taken, it's actually easy through by the mouth, a simple cheek swab. Then the sample is sent to Avellino for processing. The results are not shared with anyone at all. The results are posted to a HIPAA compliant web portal and the results are received in about two weeks. So there are also genetic counselors who are available to help eye care professionals and patients alike. In addition on this is kind of the corneal dystrophy side is that corneal dystrophy, unlike PRS score uh, for keratoconus, which is classified as low, medium, or high risk, on uh, corneal dystrophies, you can get a definitive yes or no diagnosis of a specific corneal dystrophy based on the monogenic data uh, from the TGFBI genes. And there's uh, 70 TGFBI variants that, uh, that we look at. Um, so when we look at this, this really makes it a valuable uh, decision-making tool to help us uh, you know, understand uh, more about the, uh, the individual's condition, but also how we're gonna manage their vision in the future. Great points, John. So when we're talking about management, we could be talking about kids, for example, children that might have keratoconus to do cross-linking earlier. We might be talking about refractive surgery decisions, whether to do a corneal-based procedure or a lens-based procedure. And now we're just sort of looking at this test for eye care and how we can actually help save vision for our patients over their entire life. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting prospect on this because, you know, you have two progressive, uh, you know, going back to that question that you had, two progressive uh, disease populations that kind of overlap, right? With like myopia in, in this pediatric population, but also, you know, keratoconus happens in the pediatric population too. You know, the two overlap. 
Um, so having the uh, genetic risk assessment is you know, something that may be beneficial uh, when we're looking at treating individuals or, or rather pediatric patients uh, for myopia, right? Now, John, let me start by asking you, how does understanding the genetic risk of keratoconus relate to your management of myopia patients? Good question, Melissa. So, you know, when we look at myopia and keratoconus, obviously uh, they are, they're both, you know, refractive-based diseases, uh, one being axial elongation, the other one being uh, corneal uh, curvature changes uh, becoming more steep and thus creating a little bit of myopia with that. Um, the most important portion of this to recognize is that they're both happening in the pediatric population. So these are overlapping populations. So if we look at the various different studies that are out there from Hashimi or, you know, uh, Neto Torres, or if we look at any one of the, uh, the studies out of the Netherlands or uh, Australia or New Zealand studies, what we find is that the prevalence of keratoconus uh, is much higher than we had previously thought. And that's really happening because we now have better means of diagnosing the individuals. So if we have a higher prevalence of keratoconus and we know that we have a high level of myopia, um, you know, and we know that this is an overlapping population, it would be important for us to, you know, know what a genetic risk for keratoconus is going to be uh, for an individual who has developed myopia so that we can understand, you know, what their possible future may look like, right? Um, right now, if we look at the genetic risk assessment uh, that's available from the Avigen test, um, it allows for a risk assessment. So it is kind of predictive value, right? If we're looking at treating myopia in these individuals, we may start treatment of myopia before an individual uh, starts manifesting uh, signs of keratoconus, right? If we look at the, some of the studies that are out there, we'll, you know, we'll see the onset of keratoconus being in the early teens because of the diagnostic factors that we have, right? But if we had a genetic risk score that was able to tell us this individual has a high risk, maybe we should be you know, selecting a little different treatment for this individual or following them a little bit closer. It would change or impact uh, our choices that we would make in myopia management, right? Obviously, the Avigen test is not for myopia, uh, specifically, it is developed for keratoconus and uh, corneal dystrophies, but you could use the data from this to help guide some of your decision making as to what myopia management strategy uh, you may, so that you don't, you know, target the, you know, the cornea uh, for treatment and then end up developing keratoconus later on. And because you used a corneal based treatment, you've now delayed uh, the diagnosis of, uh, of keratoconus. Excellent points, John. So tell us a little bit more about how this genetic data can personalize the management of myopia. Management of myopia, you know, is multifactorial, right? Obviously, all of these treatments that are there are in an effort to slow axial length elongation, right? We can almost think of this in the same way 
that, you know, a refractive surgeon may approach refractive surgery, right? We have generally corneal-based treatments and we have lens-based treatments, right? So for corneal-based treatments, a refractive surgeon has, you know, uh, LASIK, PRK, SMILE, uh, you know, lens-based treatments could be, you know, a refractive lens exchange or a uh, or an ICL placement, right? In myopia uh, management, you know, we have uh, a couple different targets, right, to get the same axial length uh, slowing effect, uh, which maybe myopia might be better uh, called progressive uh, axial length elongation that we're concerned with uh, rather than refractive error. But when we look at the treatment options for this, uh, corneal-based treatments for myopia management would be orthokeratology, right? Orthokeratology works by manipulating the epithelium of the cornea, or rather reshaping the corneal epithelium uh, to create a defocus, an optical defocus uh, pattern uh, so that we can uh, create a slowing of the uh, of the axial length of the eye. Now we can also create defocus uh, optical pathways with uh, defocus spectacles, which aren't available in the United States yet, uh, but will be coming. And the use of a defocus soft contact lenses, right? So we can call those our optical based treatments. Um, you know, neither one of those affects the corneal shape. And the last one we can look at is a pharmaceutical based. Uh, therapy, uh, such as atropine, right? So all of these, um, you know, options, how do we choose which one might work the best for an individual and which one, you know, may, uh, you know, may be most appropriate for an individual? Well, if we use uh, the PRS scoring for keratoconus, and let's say we had an individual who had high risk for keratoconus, we could use that data to say, well, we want to preserve the diagnostic factor of the cornea itself. So maybe even though orthokeratology is safe and FDA approved, uh, we may forego using orthokeratology in an individual with high risk for keratoconus uh, because it'll preserve the diagnostic factor of the anterior cornea so that we can catch keratoconus uh, at an earlier state if it were to occur, right? Because once we've manipulated the cornea with orthokeratology, we no longer have that as a diagnostic factor, right? So using this uh, may allow us to really personalize the treatment uh, for the individual that are needing myopia management. On the other side of this too, you know, if we're looking at just follow-ups on this, if an individual, uh, you know, with progressive myopia uh, had a higher uh, risk score, what we may do for that individual is have them follow up more often, right? So instead of seeing them every six months or a year, we may see them every, you know, three to six months for these individuals to check in and just make sure that their corneas are looking nice and stable. Obviously, we don't have a myopia genetic test just yet, um, but if we use this genetic test for uh, keratoconus in this overlapping population area, um, this can help guide some of the treatments uh, that, that we may choose for an individual. That's exactly right, John. You mentioned environmental factors, and there are other considerations too when we're looking at these overlapping populations of myopia and keratoconus, family history, race, and especially when we're looking at myopia, time doing near work, time in school on digital devices, reading, all of those things. And then we also want to consider the time spent outdoors 
and we know that outdoor time is beneficial for myopia. And then again, going back to keratoconus, we want to ask about things like allergies and atopy and asthma. It's important to get a really thorough uh, patient history when we're evaluating for both keratoconus and myopia. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. So Melissa, you know, obviously as children grow, their eyes grow as well. So if we're having increasing axial length and, you know, increases in myopia, we're going to have changes in the vision in these individuals. Tell me a little bit about the differentiation between, you know, these pediatric patients. You know, some of them are going to come in telling you the same things. How do you determine if it's a myopia-related vision change or an irregular astigmatism and keratoconus-related uh, vision change? You know, do you ever contemplate these uh, these sort of changes like this based on uh, patient uh, symptomology? A great question, John. And, and yes, every day. So I think, you know, just like we're always assessing for myopia in an eye exam, just like we have to rule out dry eye and ocular surface disease for every single patient, we also have to look at the possibility for keratoconus and cornealectasia. And once we start looking for it, then we find it so often. Now, some experts in the field, and I love getting quotes from experts, but here are some just to have a little fun with this. You know, Pat Caroline and Kate Gifford, they both say that there's no safe level of myopia, which I think is so true. And we know that eye exams are important even for babies and small children and especially before kindergarten. And then Earl Smith, have you ever met a myopic child that didn't get worse? No. Obviously, these pediatric patients they all present with the same sort of, the vision is getting worse, my prescription is changing. Do you ever contemplate whether this is just, you know, myopia with regular astigmatism versus, you know, could this be keratoconus with irregular astigmatism? So the overall effect for both myopia and keratoconus or corneoctasia is reduced or decreased vision, which needs to be treated, whether it's an increase in myopia, regular astigmatism, or irregular astigmatism associated with keratoconus. And there are many conditions associated with myopia, and that is why we want to manage the myopia, including cataracts, glaucoma, retinal detachment, and myopic maculopathy. I'm sure you, just like me, we've had many patients that come in. I can think of one 18-year-old, minus 10, retinal detachment, we can also, you know, th that's one of many. But if you look at all the studies and look at the risks associated with myopia, especially in higher levels of myopia, that is why we want to manage the myopia. Now, Bullimore and Brennan have a great study. This was actually a combination analysis of five different studies in 21,000 patients, showing that a one diopter increase in myopia is associated with a 67% increase in the prevalence of myopic maculopathy. So in other words, slowing myopia by one diopter should reduce the likelihood of a patient developing myopic maculopathy by 40%. And other things that we might want to look at is myopia over minus six diopters. So sharing this for glaucoma, for example, there's a 14.4 times greater risk of glaucoma in this population. And 
more than a three times, actually a 3.3 times increased risk of a PSC cataract in this population. So having this genetic profile allows better management options to be made. This special edition episode of CRST the podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. In this segment, we want to dig a little deeper into how Avigen's predictive value guides providers considering corneal-based treatments for their patients. For example, we know that OrthoK is a great option for managing myopia. But John, can you tell us how it could lead to a missed or delayed diagnosis of keratoconus? So, Melissa, yeah, that is one of the, you know, concerns of, of using a corneal-based treatment uh, is that the orthokeratology treatment works by reshaping the corneal epithelium. And when we reshape the corneal epithelium, uh, though obviously it's safe and FDA approved, when we reshape the corneal epithelium, we are now eliminating the front surface of the cornea as being a diagnostic factor uh, for keratoconus, right? So what does that mean? Well, if we're changing the shape of the corneal topography uh, so that we uh, can achieve a defocused optical shape, um, you know, we are changing the shape of that, uh, that cornea on topography, which means if the stroma is changing shape subtly underneath it, we're not getting that translated to the anterior uh, shape of the cornea when we take topography. The other portion of this is even if we're using a, let's see, an OCT, for instance, uh, if we were looking at epi maps, uh, the epithelial mapping on keratoconus that's obviously well studied uh, by Lee and her group, as well as Reinstein and his group, but we get these epithelial donut-like patterns, right? Where the epi is thin in the center with a little thickening around the, uh, the base or the apex of the uh, cornea. So when we look at that uh, keratoconic epithelial shape, what else has an epithelial shape like that where we create a donut of elevation with a thinning in the center of it? Well, orthokeratology creates a epithelial profile like that. So now we've lost not only the diagnostic ability on a corneal topographer reflection-based placido device, we've also lost it by looking at epithelial maps. It's one of those that just kind of confounds uh, the possibility of finding keratoconus at its earliest state, right? We need more sophisticated devices, corneal topographers, or excuse me, tomographers, uh, you know, that are Scheinfeld-based or even OCT-based that are able to give us posterior corneal elevation maps uh, to be able to see these changes and looking at corneal uh, thickness distribution maps um, that would be able to be uh, uh, followed after the treatment for a new baseline. So it's actually a, a very interesting uh, effect. So if you had the predictive value or the PRS values uh, that say that an individual may have higher genetic risk uh, for development of keratoconus, you may say, well, you know, instead of going with a corneal-based therapy, 
maybe I'll go with a pharmaceutical-based therapy or an optical-based therapy. Uh, and the other portion of this is true, is maybe you say, hey, well, this individual has a very low PRS and I feel comfortable uh, doing, uh, doing orthokeratology on this individual. And it also may dictate how often you see these individuals, right? So if you have a higher uh, risk, you may want to see them more often. If you have a lower risk, you may say, hey, every six months is, uh, is good as well. You have a lot of treatments and using this test may give you uh, the ability to select uh, you know, a better treatment for an individual uh, based on their genetics. This special edition episode of CRST the Podcast has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. Welcome back. I'm Dr. John Gellies, and I'm chatting with my colleague, Dr. Melissa Barnett. Melissa, I know you believe that looking at a patient's family history for keratoconus and other factors such as environmental and additional health issues is important, but we still need to treat myopia for those individuals. Uh, so how does the data from Avigen enter into the way that you would, uh, you would choose your myopia management strategy for an individual? Yes, John. So this comes into play when we see children in clinic and talk to parents about managing myopia. So I really like to use a myopia management calculator. I think it's nice. I'm very visual to see the progression of myopia with time, taking into account the family history, the race, taking into account also the parents and their knowledge of myopia and myopia management strategies to recommend and have that discussion of the right management for that specific patient. Now, I think we've established that managing myopia is really important. And the risk factor on the Avigen test, if it's medium or high, I definitely want to monitor that child much more closely than if the risk factor was low. So I want to make sure that I'm monitoring the child to prevent the diseases associated with myopia, such as retinal detachment or myopic maculopathy. And while we're learning so much about myopia with all of the studies, including combination studies, and the approach to managing myopia can change over time, knowing the genetic risk factors can help me to be more confident in selecting a myopia management strategy that will not preclude any potential future keratoconus treatments that may be required. So I think you covered it really well, talking about ortho-K and how it can change corneal shape. And if I'm concerned, hmm, is this myopia? Is it corneal ectasia or keratoconus? Ortho-K might not be the best management for that specific patient at that specific time. Not saying that that could change with time. Myopia is more than just a refractive error. It includes the diseases and conditions associated with myopia. And Avigen can help because there can be a range of diagnoses, including corneal ectasia and corneal dystrophies. So there's a huge opportunity for collaboration with other specialists. We could include pediatricians, for example, when we're talking about myopia by sharing the Avigen results and if we're concerned about, say, keratoconus or corneal ectasia, we might want to share this information with corneal specialists 
or other eye care providers that help manage the patient. Here's today's last question. Can you summarize the value of genetic testing on myopia management? So genetic testing as it stands right now uh, is available for keratoconus, not specifically for myopia. But since we have overlapping populations here, and we are going to initiate treatment of myopia likely before there were any sort of signs of uh, keratoconus that could be picked up during examination, uh, it is important for us to understand the risks in some of these individuals who may have you know, uh, histories that would make them more prone having keratoconus. Uh, when we look at these, really what we wanna know is one piece of information that could give us a little bit of a glimpse into the future and help us to kind of pick the right treatments for them and understand just at least one piece of the puzzle for them, right? Like we know that the genetics of myopia is highly hereditable. And, you know, if we look at kind of the complex traits that come along with this and the, you know, genetic variations that are expressed and mechanisms by which these genes are kind of cascaded through the you know, retina to sclera and different pathways, prediction of myopia based on genetic risk scores is being developed. And maybe we'll see a very specific test uh, in the future that looks at reporting genetic risk of myopia progression uh, for individuals. Um, and we know, like, if we looked at, like, the IMI and, like, the consortium for refractive error and myopia, we can find that there are, you know, various different, you know, variants for refractive error. Um, and, but even with those, we're really only explaining, you know, a small percentage of the phenotypic variants of this, uh, of myopia. So, it's complex, and right now we don't have a specific genetic test that's been developed for myopia, but we can use the Avigen test as it stands right now for the risk of keratoconus to help us guide our choices in myopia management, if that makes sense. Well said, Don. <laughs> was very concise and clear. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that Dr. Barnett and I have made it clear how Avigen and its PRS scoring for keratoconus can be useful in that overlapping pediatric population and be applicable in those individuals uh, where you're managing their myopia and selecting uh, a treatment option for that individual. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app. But for now, I'm Dr. John Gellies. And I'm Melissa Barnett. Asking you to join us next time on Genetics and Eye Care Today.